Is there a library, a bookstore around here where I could get books on rock and roll? Rock and roll. Story's true. Well, have you read this one? Read this one. This is a story that needs to be told. These rock and rollers want something to read. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Rock and Roll Librarian. With me today, as always, is Shelly Sorensen. Shelly, what's up? Yeah, I'm doing good. I've been working all day. Usually we record these on the weekend, but today I've been putting in my eight hours. Yeah, we have no time these days at the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Let me tell you, we are busy left, right, and center. Genius knows no time. Oh, is that what they call it these days? Yes. Hmm. I don't know if it's genius, but uh, we are busy. We've got a lot of shows coming up. Uh, This week especially has been on tour. Roadies Recap. We had four of the cast members from Roadies be a part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Projects podcast. And we are putting them out one day at a time. And then Peter and Amy are going to do a recap of the entire series. By the way, did you get to see Roadies? I did. I watched the whole series with my husband and I actually listened to the first interview that they did with Rick. Oh, Chris, uh, Christopher Backus. That's right. That was really, really good. He was very interesting. I like the job that they're doing on the recap and I'm really looking forward to all the interviews with the cast members. That was a good show. What do you, what do you think of the season? I like the season. I, I agree with, I think it was Amy. Well, I think they both said this, that um, it was so, such a relief to watch a series that's not all kind of steeped in tragedy and, you know, drug abuse and people cheating on each other. Well, there's a little bit of that in roadies, but anyway, it was just, it's just a a fun. Uh, The depressions of man. Yes. Television's very good at that. Blame it on the Sopranos because the Sopranos was kind of the first that went down that road. And, you know, now you've got uh, high school chemistry teachers that uh, make meth on the weekends. So... (laughs) Uh, you know, there's uh, yeah. The Walking Dead, there's, uh, the, you know, there's just all of these angst-ridden uh, adult shows, which are great, fantastic. There's a lot of that. But yes, I, to your point, I think it's it's interesting to get something that's kind of sweet. It's just refreshing. It's And it's fun to watch. And there's lots of music. And um, I love the Jackson Brown cameo. Oh, there. in episode 10. Yeah. And singing the yeah. perfect the song yeah. for the end. Yeah. yeah. Oh, will it? Uh, the one about loadout. Uh, oh, the loadout. Yeah, yeah. The loadout. Yeah. That was so yeah. perfect. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, hey, I got a question for you. What's that? Uh, are you using tongue.fm? <laughs> that sounded kind of like a weird question, Christian. <laughs> I am um, still getting used to it. I'm subscribed to the podcast. Now I'm trying to figure out how to make it work socially. That's the part I don't quite get. But otherwise, it's great. Well, pretty much everybody on the team has been using tongue.fm, T-U-N-G.fm for a social podcast, using the social media and seeing what other folks are listening to, getting short samples uh, to listen very quickly and decide whether you want to pick up that podcast or not really neat. So I'm going to ask you this question again when we get together the next time. Uh-oh. So prepare. Test. All right. What do you got for us this week, Shelly? What, what are you pulling down from the bookshelf? Well, I've read a book called Trouble Boys, The True Story of the Replacements. Oh, The Replacements. Yes. The 80s band that could, but didn't. Wouldn't. They could, but wouldn't. Oh, could, but wouldn't. Yeah, oh. yeah. I, that's perfect. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very interesting band. Yeah. Um, great uh, singer-songwriter in Paul Westerberg. Uh, I'm sure there's lots to tell. So, hey, you know, just to give everybody a flavor of the replacements, especially any of those who don't know, let's start with uh, with a song. Um, and we'll start with their biggest hit, a minor hit uh, back in the 80s, I'll Be You. Oh, if it's just a song in the 80s uh but uh 
But wait a minute. I don't think you were a big fan of these guys back in the day. You know, I wasn't. Um, actually, didn't really know very much about them. And my my uh, very dear friend and boss, Laura, um, is it was a huge fan. And when she knew I was doing this podcast, she said, oh, there's a book about the replacements that just came out. I love them. And I said, the replacements? I don't really know much about them. And I just thought, you know, if somebody that I love loves the replacements, I'm going to try it. Yeah, I think that was kind of timely because I, I mentioned them to you. I think uh, I was kind of talking about them and the jam and it would be nice to look at those two bands in the 80s. So again, that's great that you got to find them. And I believe it might be fair to say you're now a fan. I am a fan. There's a couple albums that I love, almost every song. You know, it's funny looking back and going like, you know, you go off in one direction with music and you can't catch every single great musical configuration in your life. There's only so many hours in the I day. Know, you, it's uh, really great you know. to go back and say, oh, my goodness, there was something I missed. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I've done that several times throughout my life. So, okay, so let's get into this. So uh, the book Trouble Boys, um, it's written by who? His name is Bob Mayer, M-E-H-R, and okay. it's published by DeCapo Press, who also published Under the Big Black Sun, which was the, oh, yes. the book which about the L.A. Did. punk scene mm-hmm. that we talked mm-hmm. about. Yep. They're putting out some really good books. Um, and he- Hey, I uh, understand you got a signed copy of that I book. I did. Thank you, Christian. <laughs> John Doe was very nice. Yeah. And I'm going to see, oh, I to tell you what I'm doing, what's up. I'm going to see John Doe and Exene on Saturday at Slim's. Oh, yeah, really? I'm very excited about that. So Bob Mayer uh, wrote it. He was uh, apparently a, a big fan. He's a music critic and a journalist and has done a lot of writing and been involved uh, in, in music. And he uh, he he realized that there was kind of a sketchy, kind of almost legendary story about the replacements, and he wanted to tell the story in a more kind of whole way. Strip away the myth and get to the real. That's right. And he went to Paul Westerberg and Tommy Stinson, who are kind of the remaining members of the band, and they were all for it. And Paul said, if you're going to tell the story, tell the whole story. Oh, warts and all. Yep. And oh, good. they were totally into it. It took Bob, the author, somewhere between six and 10 years to write this book. Wow. He must have interviewed at least 100 people from publishers, producers, hangers on, moms, dads, sisters, brothers, uh, ex-wives, ex-girlfriends, roadies. Oh, so this is the definitive story of The Replacements. Yes, I can't imagine that there's much else to tell. This is very, very well researched. All right, let's go back to the beginning. Tell me uh, the formation of the band. How did these uh, four cats get together? Let's see. Well, they, you know, they all grew up in Minneapolis, Yep. Um, and so Minnesota. they were all, they all shared their Midwestern repression as Midwestern repression. Yes, as, you mean like Prairie Home Companion? <laughs> I don't know. That's I'm what, sure you've listened to that show. I have. <laughs> and, um, and they, Garrison Keeler would be proud. All of the, um, all of the band members, uh, you know, grew up in Minneapolis and they all kind of coincidentally or maybe not so coincidentally came from families and situations where there was either alcoholism or abuse or mental illness. Great art comes from great problems. That's right. It does. All right, who are we talking about? We're Give me the four about, guys, man. Yes, we're talking about Paul Westerberg. Um, actually, the story starts with the Stinson brothers, Bob and ah, Tommy. yes. Who were half brothers. And Bob actually suffered um, quite a bit as a child from a couple different stepfathers who mistreated him. And then Tommy came along and Bob had already been in and out of different kinds of institutions and saw Tommy getting into trouble as well. And Bob saw music as kind of his saving grace. He needed music to stay sane and so basically forced his little brother to learn to play the bass so that he would stay out of trouble and be in this band with Bob. And Tommy was only like 12. Yeah, there's a a big age difference between the two of them, right? Tommy was just practically a baby and he played um, bass and then they got Chris Mars, who was the drummer. And they had another friend who was the singer and rhythm guitar 
guitar player for a while. They played under the name of Dog Breath and they played rock and roll covers at 100 miles an hour and top speed. And Paul Westerberg used to walk by the house where they were practicing and just hear this huge noise and great energy coming out. Of course, many times the police were called because it was too loud. (laughs) I've had that happen several times myself. Paul basically stopped in and, you know, got an introduction and elbowed the other singer out of the band and basically... Wasn't he a janitor at the time? He was a janitor. In fact, the first part of the book is called Jail, Death, or Janitor, which is basically... The options that were available. Those were the three options. And then there was be in a band. So they chose that. I'll take door number four. They chose the last. And what Paul said about that time period was, it took me a long time to find guys who had no other fucking options in life. I needed desperation. And he heard them playing and knew that they had the kind of energy that he wanted for the songs that he was starting to write and the music he was starting to play. Well, let's hear a song. What, uh, their first album, I think is called uh, um, sorry, mom. Forgot. Sorry, mom. I forgot to take the take out the trash. That's what right? my kids say to me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm gonna play. I'm in trouble. Oh, That's some badass uh, rock and roll right there. Uh, 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 you know, it's got shades of that uh, late 70s, early punk. Uh, I used to uh, head to a lot of those shows back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. Yes. Uh, so I, I can feel that. But there's some good already, some some good song craft going on there. Yes. Um, Paul Westerberg, actually, you know, he's kind of self-educated himself. At the library. Yay. Oh. Uh, he, you know, he I'm left. Good, I'm glad to know they're good for something. <laughs> he left school, you know, high school. He didn't graduate from high school and he started hanging out at the library and he read a lot. He did read a lot. And I think that really informed his lyrical, you know, his songwriting skills. At the time that they were probably playing this song in the the pubs or the, you know, the bars and, and such. They're uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Yeah, in Minneapolis. They, they were called the Impediments and they went to play at a a sober dance <laughs> but they got they got there and they were all roaring drunk so they got banned <laughs> They got banned uh, under the name The Impediments, which is why they changed their name to The Replacements so that they could keep getting gigs without the bad <laughs> reputation. Hey, whatever works, man. That's At right. least they were quick enough to know. Oh, time to change the name of the band. And as Paul said, they weren't heavy fall down drunks when I first met them. None of us were. We learned to be that together. Mm. So there was, you know, uh, they're, they're very well known for their crazy live acts and drunken hijinks. I think that is a, a bit of uh, their entire history from what I remember. Yes, it just kind of developed from there. You know, it just got more and more and more of the, you know, inebriation. I, I think they were basically all pretty much alcoholics at one time or another. All right, so uh, let's keep on moving along here because, you know, we only got so much time. So, And and they've got a lot of really good songs, so I want to get to as many songs as possible. Okay, well, one of the important things that that happened to them was they met a person named Peter Jesperson who was a record store owner at the time. There was an amazing uh, record store in Minneapolis called Orfolkjokopis or something strange like that, which was shortened to Orfolk. And he he was there and he kind of... Of, he was really, really into the Beatles and he fancied... What, what is that, like Swedish or something? Yeah, or Danish or Norwegian, <laughs> one of those. You, well, it, you know, it is Minnesota. You know, my my father is from North Dakota. We had the right. Danish thing going, but yeah. uh, he wasn't, he was, well, he was a musician, but he wasn't a crazy uh punk musician. Okay, so Peter Jesperson uh, is running this record store mm-hmm. uh, and... 
this sounds like uh, Brian Epstein with the Beatles. Yes, he really, he really actually kind of uh, fancied himself a, a, a Brian Epstein. He was very involved in the emerging punk scene in Minneapolis in the record store. He sold copies of New Musical Express to record stores. Mm, um, he, yeah. So he it was basically the rock and roll headquarters for the upper Midwest. And Paul Westerberg wanted to, he actually also um, managed, I guess, uh, a new club in the area called Jay's Longhorn. So Paul Westerberg wanted to play at Jay's Longhorn and brought Peter Jesperson a demo tape, which Jesperson just totally fell over in love with. He became totally in love with the replacements and became one of their major proponents. And yeah, he becomes their first manager. Yes, right? he's their manager. He's he's basically everything to them at the beginning. Oh, so All right. yeah, so they had their first gig there. One of the songs they likely played at the first gig in 1980 was "Johnny's Gonna Die," yeah, which is also from Sorry Ma. That's right. And it's about Johnny Thunders, who was in the New York Dolls, Yep, who was a heroin addict. And that's how Paul Westerberg wrote that song. And they actually played it with Johnny Thunders in the audience once or twice. So it was oh, kind of New York, When they went to New York City and played uh, CBGB's. Uh, well, Johnny, they, they came to, uh, the dead came to Minneapolis. That's how they met, I oh, guess. They did. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's play a little of Johnny's Gonna Die. Johnny always takes more than he needs. Knows a couple chords, knows a couple leads. Johnny always needs more than he takes. Forgets a couple chords, forgets a couple breaks. Everybody tell me that Johnny is hot Johnny needs something, but he ain't got And Johnny's gonna Nothing like die. Uh, writing songs to your idols Especially when they're going to die soon Yeah, rather uh, prophetic here Yeah, huh? that would be creepy, wouldn't it? Uh, <laughs> to have a song written about you like that It's kind of a creepy like song that. Anyway, I, I like that it's, you know, it's, it's slow tempo Um cool hooks going on there. Uh, you know, these guys definitely show some songwriting craft from very early on. Yes. Paul uh, Paul Westerberg was an incredible song. Is a, an incredible songwriter. Yeah. Still around. Yep. Unlike Johnny Thunder. That's right. Poor Johnny. <laughs> All right. Let's keep on going yep. here. So uh, take me into uh, the next stage of their career. So um, Paul Westerberg wrote a song called Kids Don't Follow, which he said was an answer to U2's I Will Follow, basically saying, <laughs> you know, kids don't follow. No, That's not what they, they won't do. Follow. <laughs> they don't follow. And they took it to Jesperson, who was so excited about it that even though they had just released an album, he wanted to get it on tape right away. So basically about six months after their first album, they released released this EP called Stink yeah. with this song on it. Uh, some of the lyrics, kids won't listen, what you're saying, kids ain't working, kids ain't playing. And they recorded, um, the intro to the song was recorded at a gig when the police came in because they were blowing the noise ordinance and tried to break up the, the gig. Well, let's play a little of... Uh Kids don't follow. Party is over with. Grab your stuff and go. And then nobody goes to jail. You want no table? So they followed the law, not... Not. They were constantly having, um, you know, police come and break up their gigs because loud was the way they were and, you know, also using whatever F-bombs they could. In fact, the, the kid that apparently used the F-word on that on that recording um, was, was identified. I don't remember his name, but they figured out, I guess he came oh, forward and says... In the book? Yeah. That was me. I'm the one who said that. <laughs> That's cool. So he's yeah. got his 
15 minutes of fame. That's show. right. <laughs> awesome, awesome. All right, so Stink was kind of an EP. So it was uh, in between um, uh, their first album, uh, Sorry Mom, Forgot to Take Out the Trash. Uh, and then I, I, I know their next album because to me, that's when they start to kind of really become the replacements that we all know and love. Yeah, and I think they recognize that their sound was coming together. I mean, I got to say, the replacements have a very loyal and deep fan base. It's not real wide. Oh, does that wide mean we're going to re- get letters? Hmm? Does that mean we're going to get uh, letters? Probably, and I just want to say at the outset that I don't claim to know everything about the replacements. I only know what I read in the book. From the book, right. And what I heard on their records. And, and I'm also, you know, following them now on social media. But I know they have a very, you know, vocal and loyal fan base. Well, they're kind of like, they're the underground band that never became overground. So they still maintain that uh, that fan base that grew up with them from the very beginning. Um, while they did gain some uh, major label attention, uh, they got signed, they had a semi-hit, which we played at the beginning. They never really got past that. They never got to that international success. Uh, they weren't on every cover of every magazine. They weren't on MTV all the time. So I, I can see where uh, they still maintain a, a familia type of following. Yes, I think People that's really true. People will die for them. Yeah. So you better be careful what you say. I know. I just want to say I'm a newbie fan. Be gentle. But you're a big fan. I mean, you really learned to love these songs, right? I did. Yeah. All right. I think that'll get you some street cred here. <laughs> I hope so. Where they start to kind of become a, a really professional act. Uh, and, and you can hear it on the records yeah. uh, with Hootenanny. And I think one thing that happened um, for them was something like what happened with the Beatles. They found a city to play in. So for the Beatles, it was Hamburg. And they just went and they just, it was like a working... They put their 10,000 hours in, they yeah, say. Yeah, it was just like they, they put in their time. So that the city for the replacements was Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, debauchery and immersion is what I have highlighted here. <laughs> as their learning ground and they played you know many many gigs there actually they opened for the damned in madison in um, 1982 and uh, bob that was the first time bob stinson who like i said had a had a, a pretty bad childhood and you know learned to play the guitar so he could you know have something to hold on to and he had an encounter with captain sensible of the damned who was a very flamboyant entertainer and he said bloody hell, mate. You need to lose the fucking flares. If anyone's going to notice you up there, you need to look and act the part. So Bob, um, you know, started... kind of doing a Captain Sensible and coming to the stage in tutu and a house dress or just like with no clothes on at all and started to kind of get his own fans and really assemble a following. Well, rock and roll yeah. is sound and vision. In fact, they were all like that. I mean, they had pretty wild shows and I think they, they often wore very odd uh, clothing and they'd come off and they would change outfits and play each other's instruments and come back on. And one of the things I, I really got from this book was how reactive they were to the audience. They they couldn't really plan on, we're going to play a good show tonight because we rehearsed and we know everything. They would get there and they would maybe have a, kind of the fans would be kind of hostile. And so instead of trying to win them over, they would give it back to them. It's like, well, you're fucking hostile. So, you know, I'm going to just, we're just going to sing, you know, uh, these are the a few of my favorite things oh, or something it's, 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 like it's, it's, that. You know, we're, we're in the process with, uh, with episode 11 of talking about the Who and the Kinks. And this sounds a lot like the Kinks. Oh, really? Uh, the Kinks did the same thing with their first tour in America where they just said, screw you people. We're just going to screw off for 20 minutes or a half hour and, uh, you know, get stuff thrown at them. And, uh, you know, because they didn't have uh, the wherewithal and they didn't have good management to kind of polish them up, uh, they, uh, you know, things went south. So right. I can see the same thing. Now, I understand that there's a great song on that on that album, yeah. Hootenanny. And this is the beginning of their... Um, of kind of this thing I was talking about where they would, you know, switch up instruments. So what they did when they were in the studio um, recording Hootenanny was when they got to the song that they wanted to do, when the producer was out of the room or wasn't looking or something, they all switched instruments. <laughs> okay. And they played the song. And then the and then the guy, the Stark, I think his name was, he was kind of confused. He was going, like, well... You guys want to do that again? And Westerberg said, no, no, that's it. That's the take. That's the first song on the first side of the album. Wow. 
All right, let's play a little of Hoot Nanny. That is fucking with the record people. I love it. And the funny thing about that is like Chris Mars, who's the drummer, plays the guitar solo on that song. And when he apparently Westerberg said afterwards that he had this funny look on his face like, whoa, I just played a guitar solo. (laughs) You know, like he was surprised that he made it through. Actually, it's not bad. Well, I know. Better than I could do. It's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, continue on. Oh, so, um, yeah, one of the things that was kind of happening, I think all all through this, um, the band's uh, history was that, you know, Paul Westerberg is this amazing songwriting talent. And he... Yeah, there's always one. You, you got to have at least one. Yeah, and uh, he comes, and if you have he comes two, up man, with... man, you can rule the world with two. He comes up with ideas for songs and realizes, oh, well, I don't... The band isn't, it's not really for the band. I mean, this is not the kind of music the band plays, but this is the kind of music I'm, you know, motivated to write. And so one of the songs that, that they put out on this album, Hootenanny, was Within Your Reach. Oh, I think he plays all the instruments on that song. Yeah, he, he was kind of torn between that. Like, I want to I want to express myself in this way, but what do, what do the band members expect of me? And so I guess this was the way around that. Well, and this is a very different song. So, all right, let's play a little of Within Your Reach, and then we'll talk about it. some of the, uh, you know, a little bit of The Cure and uh, uh, some of the other electronica bands that are just starting out there, Depeche Mode, uh, uh, that, you know, not not quite as poppy, but but it's, you know, it's got that synthesizer going on there. Very interesting. Yeah, it's it's a great song. And that's where they start pushing Paul and saying, well, you know, you're the guy. Yeah, it's interesting because they have, you know, you know how there's people around bands and, you, you know, they, I'm sure he was getting certain messages from men Management and you know that he should go solo at some point but you know that's not where they were at this time they were just starting to tour actually and uh, after they did the Midwest they they started to um, mean tour outside of yeah like Madison they, they started and getting offers and pushed to tour on the on the two coasts and at this time Tommy was only in the ninth grade. <laughs> So You're kidding me. His mother. So he's like 14 years yeah, old? Yeah, his mother had, had to give, um, what, guardianship, I guess, up to the manager. While he wasn't in Minneapolis, Jesperson was his guardian. Wow. And so he um, started, you know, gigging with them outside. They went to New York City. They went to um, Boston. Uh, they really, really had a good foothold in Boston. They, you know, met other bands like the Del Fuego. And then uh, they they were thinking about going to the West Coast, and they met uh, John Doe and Xene oh, from yes, X, our friends from X. Yes, my other favorite band. And he said they they met in Madison. Uh, John Doe said the Mats opened. Well, just to say the Mats is a is a nickname for the replacements. Right. Right. Um, at the end of the night, John Doe says we gave them a case of beer, and they were forever our friends. <laughs> uh, Exine. That's all it took back in those days. Exine yep. used to watch them from the foot of the stage and, you know, whip the fans into a frenzy and, you know, and insist that they that they pay attention. That was and, very nice of her. Yes. And so they basically, they laid the groundwork for their first West Coast tour in 83 um, and, uh, you know, got got a foothold into that audience. Also at the, the same, oh. And I think it, they supported R.E.M. Uh, that year too. 
the mats. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, probably. I mean, they did know REM uh, for a great bit. They had a friendly rivalry with REM. But when they when they went out to LA, they opened for Social Distortion, which was funny because they were a hardcore punk band. And they came on stage. This is kind of an example of them taking the kind of the feeling of the audience and spitting it back at them. So they're playing for this hardcore punk audience and they get up on the stage and Tommy immediately goes, oh, punks. <laughs> and they, you know, they see this audience with the matching mohawks. So what they did was they played every ballad in country tune in their repertoire, including a cornball version of Hey, Good Lookin'. Oh, happy times. And the crowd, of course, was totally apoplectic. They yeah. just were, were totally, you know, just off their heads with the whole thing. Rip the place yeah. apart. All right, let's get us uh, forward into uh, the next album. So the let next it, album, be, yeah, the next is, album is that's a great hysterical. Album. Let it be. They chose that uh, name just to just to um, kind of mess with their producer. <laughs> um and uh, actually, as you were mentioning, R.E.M., uh, they did become good friends with Peter Buck, who mm-hmm. played with R.E.M., and yep. he played on um, one of the songs, I Will Dare, because at that point, um, Bobby Stinson was already becoming kind of marginalized in the band. There were there was a lot of music that Westerberg was writing that Bobby just couldn't get into kind of the more um, delicate and, I don't know, I don't know what the right word is. The um, I don't know. Just the he wanted it hard. The, he he wanted just wanted it hard and fast. And mm-hmm. he was a great guitar player and played yes. kind of incendiary solos. But um, Buck delivered a different kind of uh, guitar solo to that song. I will dare. Well, let's listen to I will dare. This is when Westerberg really is coming to his own uh, as a, as a great singer songwriter. Um, and to be honest with you, he could probably have any band behind him at this point. Um, granted, um, uh, the Stinson Brothers uh, and Mars are, are, are a great unit, and you can hear it. Um, one of my favorite replacement songs of all time is Unsatisfied. And I, I, I would feel really bad if I couldn't even play a few moments <laughs> you of that. You should. So if you don't mind. Not at all. Let's play for the folks. Let's do it. Unsatisfied. <laughs> Side by side with Gary's Got a Boner. I think that makes that makes the album just complete. What do you think? There, there you go. That's uh, two sides of the replacements right, right there. He's so uh, sensitive, that Paul. Yeah, and then sometimes not, huh? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Where, where are we going next? We are going, well, uh, let's see. They have their first national tour. In 1983. Oh, and major label attention, yes. Yes. And, uh, you know, like I said, they didn't seem to have any control over whether they would have a good or bad gig. During that tour for Let It Be, the last gig that they did for that tour was all covers. And they included the Carter family, Motley Crue. They just did any any band that they wanted to. And they did a recording of that gig. It was a 23-song official bootleg they called The Shit Hit the Fans. Oh, I don't have that. No, I'll gotta that look it sucker. up. Gotta right. look it up. So um, they... You know, of course, uh, Minneapolis was in a 
a big kind of renaissance at that time, 1984. They had Husker oh, Du, they yeah. had Prince. Prince. Yeah, yeah I mean, <laughs> yeah, amazing. I mean, and Let It Be of, actually did very well. Top of the pops there. Let it, Let it Be did very well with the critics. They, they got a four-star review in Rolling mm-hmm. Stone. But then Paul said, being the critics band is the curse of death. Oh, it, it can be. Yep. Uh, or you can use it to your advantage. But they did not. They did not. They bought, so what happens? They bought into the lovable loser thing. Oh, Jesus. Um, they had, uh, well, okay, the next big thing that happened was they needed to get signed to a major label. Right. So they were so far just with Twin Tone in Minneapolis. Yeah, and it's time to move on to the big boys. Yeah, and they got shopped around and they, and Warner Brothers... I guess it's called an imprint or something, What like a, yeah, 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 a sub-label, yeah, which is called Sire Records. Sire, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. they, um, they signed on the replacements. Well, yeah, Seymour Stein was the uh, head of Sire at that time. That's and, right. Uh, he, Quite a flamboyant uh, person Ramon, himself. So, In fact, you know. um, he was so... Uh, you know, he was, I think, a really good choice for them in the way that he understood them and he was kind of like them in a way because he was he was quite a, a substance uh, user himself, quite flamboyant and um, kind of worked against them in the long run because there was basically no one driving the bus. Everybody was having a good yeah, time. Yeah, everybody was having a good time. <laughs> keep, a, keep it rolling, boys. <laughs> so right. the next the next album was Tim, which yeah, is my favorite. Mm-hmm. Album, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that whole yeah, produced, album. Yeah, produced by uh, Tommy Ramone. That's right. I know, and I was like Tommy Erdelye. How do you say that anyway? That's his real name. Erdelye, uh, uh, Erdelye, or something. That's Tommy Ramone's. You know, they weren't all Ramones. They weren't yeah, all born Ramones. No, no, Ramones. no. He, yeah, he's uh, he's uh, uh, Eastern European. So that's uh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that, that, I, that I I don't know how to say his name, but I I know he was the original yeah. drummer. Well, and after Joey decided that he sucked at drums and went to lead singer, then. Uh, uh, then he kind of became uh, the the the, uh, the drummer for the yeah, first. Yeah, I think few it's, it's really albums. fun how the musicians um, became producers and back and forth. You know, I mean, because it seems like you would need to have some kind of hands-on knowledge of playing in order to be a producer. I don't know if all producers are musicians or not, but anyway. No, no, not necessarily. Yeah. Actually, there's a lot of producers that aren't musicians at all. So yeah, that was, um, and I, they can still get the job done just as fine and as well as those that are. Well, as Nick Lowe said. <laughs> I always have to bring him in. You, you know bring how, Nick Lowe in. You know I think you have in Peter, every episode. Peter though. always brings in like Game of Thrones or something. Yes, I have to he see does. if I can work Nick Lowe. Yeah, that or the Grateful Dead. So, <laughs> so you know the uh, the job of the producer is just kind of tell jokes and make people feel comfortable. You know, well, which, you know that there is a bit of that. Yeah. that that needs to you need to manage these uh, artists uh, to try to get the best out of them uh, to create the energy, uh, the cohesiveness that needs to. Uh, be done in you know especially in the days of albums uh you know the, which don't exist anymore it's the days of singles again here so um you know it's important to have somebody that can you know bring everybody together to on a common goal to get uh, these this 40 some odd minutes of music uh if you're you're talking the old vinyl days of um uh you know in a in a cohesive unit so um you know that's that's important yeah and they Tom, s- Tommy was great Tommy was a, a great producer you know and by the way just so you know he was the last Ramon. You know, there are no more Ramones. They have all passed on to the other side. And is is he still alive? Or? No, no, Tommy, no. He, Tommy he was the last one to pass away. Yeah, so he he produced Tim, and um, they were still uh, the Mats at that time were still recording live together. So uh, the trend was going toward you know uh, doing tracks and splitting uh, performers up, and then diddling with uh, the the track afterwards and kind of putting it together. The basic tracks were all done live. Yeah, the yeah the replacements were still recording live at that. time time. Um, one of the the songs that I think was really great, well, there are a lot of great, I was having a hard time choosing from this album, but Here Comes the Regular is just yeah, it's a great song. Beautiful and so sad. And he came in to the recording studio by himself, um, Paul Westerberg, and recorded it in darkness uh, just by himself with the guitar. They added everything else, all the other instruments on afterwards. And Jesperson and Ramon uh, were just 
crying by the end of it. It's just a beautiful song. I actually just posted uh, John Doe covering it on Facebook. It's it's gorgeous. You did? Yeah. All right, let's play a little of Here Comes a Regular. Everybody wants to be special here They call your name out loud and clear Here comes a regular Call out your name Here comes a regular Am I the only one here today? Well, a drinking buddy okay, is that found is a street poet yeah. in his prime. Yeah. Right there. That's um, that gives me chills. Yeah, that's, that's interesting, a great song. The interesting thing is, you know, he he is in a way self-aware about what's going on with him. I mean, the song is about the drudgery of being an alcoholic and being, you know, the yeah, dead coming into end, the bar every yeah, night. The yeah, the dead end of being in a bar every night. And he can do that alone in a dark room and sing that, but that's not something that he would probably chat about to his friends or therapist or anything like that. So he's bringing it no, all into his music. No, but he can work it out. He can work it out that's in right. music. Yeah, that's great. Now, now, kind of on a, on a totally different, uh, well, it's actually not totally different. Um, the There's so many songs on this album I love. I mean. I got to narrow you down yeah, to gotta, a couple. Otherwise, we'll be here bus, all day long. Bastards of Young, Left of the Dial. I love Little Mascara. It's so cute. But um, you, the one. You're really a fan. I know. Man, aren't you? I just love this album. Swingin' Party is a really cool song. It actually still um, draws from the kind of theme of the dead end of partying and alcoholism and stuff like that. He was inspired by uh, Frank Sinatra and Nancy Sinatra and Buffalo Springfield and he kind of mashed up some different things. Listen different to that mid-60s stuff, Yeah, huh? and, um, and as he said, you know, if you steal from everyone, no one can finger you on, you know, any one song that you're stealing, so, oh, you know, yes. he just... Famous saying, yeah. Yeah. So, the good artists borrow, great artists steal. So this is, I, I like this song. This is a All cool right. one. Let's play a little of Swingin' Party. songs to choose from from that album it's it's really really difficult but you know what i got an idea i think i can get you one more song from tim tell me about their time on saturday night live well just like you know something about saturday night live i guess because it's live because you know how we talked about elvis costello yeah they got banned from saturday night live too maybe it's something about lauren michaels i don't know (laughs) somebody like the dad that you want to you know piss off you could call it unprofessionalism uh, on the other side, uh, but... So the way this started was Warner wanted to get them back on video and get them on TV. And, and well, this the, is the 80s, man. If you, you ain't on MTV. That's, you gotta you be nothing. on TV. Uh, so the Mo Austin, who was the head of Warner Brothers, was friends yep, with Lauren yep. Michaels. And so he got them on Saturday Night Mo Live yeah. in 1986. Actually, they, they were able to squeeze in because the Pointer Sisters canceled. And that's kind of like what happened to Elvis Costello, too. He yeah, got in at the backup. last minute. They were a replacement. Yeah, they were a replacement. That's right. They picked their name well. So they they were trying to be good, actually, oddly enough. I've seen this. Really? They were trying to be good? They were trying to be good. 
but they were just being themselves, unfortunately. So Paul uh, yelled to Bob at the middle of the song, come on, fucker. But, you know, kind of off mic. He didn't really do it to be incendiary. That's just the way they talk to each other. Right. So it slipped past the censors. And actually then as they left the stage for the first song, Bob did a backward somersault revealing his bare ass because his outfit, which was like some kind of multicolored house dress, dress or something, yeah. Yeah. but, you know, yeah. flipped up over his head <laughs> and like, just caught a little glimpse of his his butt. Oh, and then, of course, the Lauren Michaels was furious and just totally reamed them out. I mean, they were a new band. They didn't have any cachet or anything with Lauren Michaels. He could tell them anything he wanted to. And, King um, of late night NBC. Yeah, and then like Bob Stinson was really furious afterwards and trashed the hotel room too. And the bill came to Lauren Michaels as well. So they were not on TV for another three years. Oh. And this, uh, actually they came back on and they did Bastards of Young, which is a great song. And you can see that on YouTube. Okay, so we're getting down here uh, to the end of these guys. I mean, there things are going to change. Uh, I think Tim is like the, the high watermark for uh, the band itself. And then uh, I know we have some issues with the Bob Stinson that's going to come up here. We're kind of moving into, uh, again, you know, to mess with the Beatles. Uh, please to meet me. <laughs> so kind of get me here where we're at. And there's some great songs on that album as well. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, well, you know, poor Bob Stinson, you know, like I said, he had a lot of abuse in his childhood. Um, he probably had like psychoactive disorder as they find out um, later. He, you know, was an alcoholic and a drug addict. He would take the money from the gig and go off and, you know, buy drugs and not be seen for days and, you know, weeks at a time. Tried to commit suicide. Uh, he's also kind of not keeping up with the changes that they were making in the band. So they unfortunately decided they needed to fire Bob. Oh. Chris Mars wasn't on board with that, but they had to call him and tell him it was all over. Of course, he was disappointed and it was, you know, it was really hard for Tommy. Yeah, he's the guy that kind of started the band. Yeah. But, you know, actually, he, he never really wanted to go big. I, you know, he really was happy not happy, I wouldn't say, but he went back to Minneapolis and, and played. He played with other bands locally and, uh, you know, he had a family and everything. So he died young. Um, he did. Actually, the, the book starts with his funeral. He died, I think, in 94, 95 and actually he died of natural causes. But he had abused his body so much that, uh, you know, it wasn't a specific event. It was just yeah, that his organs like pretty much old. failed. Mm -hmm. um, so basically they had to go on to make the, the new album, you know, with just three of them uh instead of four and Paul decided to take on the, the lead guitar parts as now this well. Was, this was a, a, several years later that Bob passed away. He's still alive at this point. So it's not like this at is the a, point in the story. some sort of memorial album. Yeah. All right. So again, uh, get me, uh, get me, get, get me there to uh, please to meet me. Okie dokie. So they, they move on to record their next record, which is called Please to Meet Me without their lead guitar player. Uh, so there's just a three band, uh, three member three band. band. Yeah. And uh, Westerberg uh, decided he could soldier on with the lead guitars. And so they went to Memphis. Uh, they had a new producer that produced them in Memphis and started recording on separate tracks. And he added, you know, a whole bunch of horns and all kinds of stuff. And they recorded there. There was a, a great song that they recorded called The Ledge, which actually is about a teenager, a boy who is about to commit suicide. So it's from the point of view of the jumper looking down at the crowd. Paul wrote it in 45 minutes and he had a lot of suicide kind of in his background. He had actually attempted suicide himself as a teenager. His friend who he was in a band with committed suicide and died. So this was something that was really up for him. Unfortunately, because of the time period, there were apparently an epidemic of teen suicides around that time. And so the label had a little bit of a hard time with it. It was obviously the single from the album, but MTV wouldn't show the video because it was seen as maybe something, you know, like copycat kind of stuff Ugh. might happen with it. Mm. So that was too bad because, you know, it was a great song and it could have been one of their hits. 
Well, let's play that for the folks. Ladies and gentlemen, The Ledge. done in one take and um, Westerberg was so like drained after uh, recording that he said I don't have to do that again do I because <laughs> he just couldn't you know dig up the energy the for it yeah the emotions it, right? so they they toured that album you know as a crazy did wild. some things with Tom Petty I think um, Tom Petty that was the last album that they toured oh, Tom it was. Petty. Okay. yeah but this is now really the beginning of the end I mean this is the the end of the end is coming up. We've only got two more albums before they're yeah. done. Chris Mars had been kind of pulling away or not not really kind of buying into the whole all for one and one for all thing for a while. He got married and his wife actually had opinions about what he should be doing. He's also an accomplished artist and was starting to get some- I think that's what he does now, right? It, it is. I follow him on Facebook. He does strange but gorgeous paintings. I'll go take a look. Westerberg likened it to like if Ringo married Yoko. They were okay. kind of seeing Chris Mars' wife, you know, the drummer's wife as the one that kind of drove the wedge between them. But really, you know, it was like Chris Mars was looking at it like, okay, we're 30 people, we're 30 years old. And, you know, I, I'm not into this kind of death defying band thing anymore. So anyway, they, they went on to record the next album, which is called Don't Tell a Soul. And they burned through their first producer, fired him kind of mid-album and found a new producer. Now, Chris is still with the band, he's right? He's still with the band, but he's starting to kind of actually not be used on the, on the new albums as oh, much. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and so- Bring in the studio drummer. When they're recording Don't Tell a Soul, actually, they happened to meet Tom Waits, who was actually at a mutual admiration kind of society for each other. And Waits um, loved the replacements. He said, they seem broken, you know, one leg is missing. I like that. And so he uh, came to the studio with them, with his wife, and they, you know, he was behaving very civilized and everything. And as soon as she left, he grabbed the bottle of Jack Daniels and began chugging it. And uh, the producer says he just turned into Tom Waits, like Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde. I mean, he was just acting like a normal person. And all of a sudden, there he is. He's Tom Waits. There's that guy. Yeah. And they- The guy we all know and love. That's right. And he spent, they spent all night in a drunken, you know, jam session with each other. And a lot of it was caught on tape. Um, and they, one of the ones that's on the extra tracks from the, um, from that album, which is called Don't Tell a Soul, is them singing a song called Date to Church, which is a rousing gospel oriented song with a bunch of degenerates singing, <laughs> which I love. We got to play some of that. Yes. All right. Here's, what is it? It's called Date to Church. Date to Church. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, I'll spend some time listening to that sucker. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right. So we're, we're getting towards the end here. We are. Uh, you know, it's a great 10-year career. Um, it's so, it's so great. In a lot of ways, these guys really do. They, 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 there is this mythology that exists with them, which I think is awesome. Yeah. Uh, and they deserve quite a bit of it because they had a big middle finger to the man through their entire career. Oh, yeah. They never once uh, gave in to uh, to the masses, gave in for the almighty dollar. Right. It was in a lot of ways about brotherhood. It was about writing some good songs and, you know, it, fuck it. If you didn't like them, whatever, go go find some yeah. other band. I think they were, I think they were ambivalent. I mean, Paul Westerberg was kind of ambivalent. He, in some part of him, wanted a hit. You know, even though he was giving the middle finger the whole time, he realized... Well, he certainly did have a hit off that album. Uh, you know, they did have their big hit, I'll, I'll Be You. Yeah, but it didn't quite, it didn't quite peak, you know? No, no, it was only, yeah, it, it, you know, you heard it on K-Rock if you were in L.A. You heard it on the alternative stations, yeah. uh, if you will. It's like a little bit of a Greek tragedy almost. You know, they, they have the one song that's might make it and it doesn't quite do it. Right, right, yeah. right, right. All right, well, oh man. So we're down here to the end. All Shook Down, I think, is their last album, 1991, right? That's right. And, and you know, um, at that point, Paul Westerberg is at a low in his physical health and his emotional health. He, he can barely, you know, he's just rejecting alcohol. I mean, he's just a total um, alcoholic. He kind of wants to go solo, but he can't do it, his label says, until they get one more replacements album. They want to make the replacements album go big and then launch Paul off of that. But but since they haven't had a really, really big album, they don't really want him, you know, to support him going solo. So they decide to do this one more album, which is called All Shook Down. Mm -hmm. And um, now at this point, um, uh, Tommy Stinson's in the band. This is a three piece, right? Mars is still in the Christopher Mars is still in the band. Right. But uh, they've uh, they've added on a slam. A slam, right. Slim's and in the band. he's been playing with them for a while and he gets, you know, pulled into the replacements thing. Um, and, you know, Chris Mars started to, to do some songwriting too. And not only didn't they use his songs on the album, they didn't even use his drumming on a lot of the album. So he was really being pushed out. He wasn't kind of fitting in with the social thing of the band and he wasn't fitting in musically. And finally uh, they fired him too. Uh down to two. Yeah, really bad. And so on this album, Paul is actually finally kind of giving in uh, to the producer and deciding, you know, okay, let's go for it. Let's go ahead and produce the album, you know, make it slicker, make it, make it something that the masses are going to like. But but ironically, at that time period, which is around 1990, radio and album sales were entering a trend toward the wild, raw, and rude. Yeah, Nirvana was uh, was uh, kicking up uh, a lot of dust. Guns N' Roses, big right then. Yeah. Yeah. They it's really kind of missed their, they missed their time, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, they needed to be wild and crazy again. Yep. Oh. All right, give me one more song here one more at song. the end. I think we should go with the title song song, which is all shook down. It really shows the kind of uh, decline that Westerberg was going through. He actually recorded his vocals for the song lying down under the piano and just singing off the phrases because he could barely sing. He could barely stand. And uh, that's where he was. He was on wow. the floor. And let's hear it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, all shook down. And the wood cups. Shoot each other in bed And I wouldn't go to see you They put the checkbook to my head Temple tiny liquors And emperor's chicken Some shit on the knee Well, that was a poignant way to, uh, and uh, this 10-year career with these guys. Uh, that was really great. Uh, so, Shelly, what do you think of the book? Well, it was... The big tome, wasn't it? Was, it was. It? This, is, this is real rock and roll archaeology here. Yes, real archaeology. I really respect this author, Bob Mayer, for all the research he, he did. He did a detailed job, didn't oh, he? Oh, it's totally detailed. I mean, it it's just got so much great information in it about the band and about, you know, just... It's just, it's complete. 
it's got to be complete. <laughs> so if you are a serious fan of The Replacements, this is the book for you. Right. Or even a serious fan of music. Uh, you want to read something, but a uh, great book about music. I mean, you know, it crosses over into all kinds of musicians that you probably know and love. Um, uh, they all touched each other in some way. And, you know, the the uh, band knew that they were this was going to be their last show, but they didn't tell everybody it was going to be their last show. They went to a festival in Chicago and they pulled a hootenanny and called their roadies up on stage to play their instruments and basically walked off one at a time. And that was it. So it was kind of like the, the big middle finger at the, at the very end of their career. As they did through the entire career. Yep. Yeah. Towards the industry. As yeah. they began, they, 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 they left. Well, great. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you liked it. I uh, did. I'm glad you really liked the replacements. That's, uh, that's cool. That's a, I'm sure you're going to be playing a lot of them for a while. Yep. They're on my, uh, borrowed all seven albums on Hoopla and just got them on rotation. Well, Shelly, thanks. This has been fun. Excellent. Can't wait for the next book when we get together here next month. All right, I'm going to leave everybody with uh, one of my favorite replacement songs. Um, again, from Please to Meet Me, this is Alex Chilton. social injustice. Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. The Rock and Roll Librarian. Produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Co-host, Shelley Sorensen. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. <laughs>